Our scripture text this evening comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. It is from the second half of verse 13 that the Puritan John Owen wrote a book, a 400-plus page book, called The Mortification of Sin. Well, tonight I have uh, bad news for you and good news for you. The bad news is, is I am not John Owen. The good news is our sermon will be nowhere near 400 plus pages. Take that, John Owen. Uh, Hear again the word of God Almighty. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In this passage here before us, we see that God delivers us from sin. And when he delivers us from sin, he enlists us in a war against sin. So God, having delivered us from sin then enlists us or requires us to participate in the destruction of that sin. We're going to look at this passage in three parts. First, there's an obligation in verse 12. Secondly, there is a warning in the first half of verse 13. And then finally, there is a promise in the second half of verse 13. So an obligation, a warning, and a promise. In verse 12, it begins with the word, therefore. This signals a conclusion. It refers back to what we read in verses 1 through 11 about the Spirit of God and how the Spirit... Remember, there was a great contrast between the flesh and the Spirit... And the flesh brings death, but the spirit brings life. So what we read here in verses 12 and 13 follows from that. And remember that there are two and only two classes of men under heaven. And that is those who are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. To be in the flesh is to be controlled by sin. To be in the spirit is essentially to be controlled by God, the Holy Spirit. Those who are in the flesh, we read, will die, whereas those who are in the Spirit will live. You, beloved, you, dear Christian, are not in the flesh. Rather, you are in the Spirit. Indeed, God says that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, therefore, verse 12, you are debtors not to the flesh, To live according to the flesh. In other words, you have no obligation to the flesh. You owe it no thanks. You owe it no honor. You owe it no obedience. God has severed the bond between you and the flesh. And has created a bond between you and himself. You know, we worship and serve a holy trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you know that Satan is always a counterfeiter, and there is an unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
this unholy trinity comprises three of the Christian's enemies. And it is this middle enemy, the flesh, that refers to the residual power of sin that resides in you, the leftovers of sin, which is being discussed here. But do not forget this. God says you are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. As we've mentioned before, to live according to the flesh means to follow the dictates of the flesh, to follow the sinful inclinations and affections. It is to live as a slave in service to sin. There may have been a time in which you were in the flesh and you were on the side of sin. But not anymore, Christian. You who believe in Jesus Christ, you are in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you, and you are on the side of the Spirit. Now look closely at verse 12, and we have an assertion, we are debtors, and this is followed by a negation, not to the flesh. Understand that the assertion, we are debtors, is not what's negated there. Okay, that fact remains. The apostle says we are sinners. You could put a period there and just leave it at that. He qualifies it. We are not debtors to the flesh. What he is saying here is not that we are not debtors in any sense or to any one, but rather we are not debtors specifically to the flesh. The completion of the statement is left off so that we may fill it in ourselves. You see the parallel building. We are debtors to the Spirit, right? We are debtors, beloved, not to the flesh, but we are debtors to the Spirit. That is the complete thought that's intended here. And this is obvious from what came before in verses 1 through 11. If you think about it, Everything that makes us not debtors to the flesh are things that the Spirit has done for us, which implies then our debt to the Spirit. And this is also implied by what will follow in verse 13, which we will look at in just a little bit. So to put it very simply, we are debtors to the Spirit for the reasons that we are not debtors to the flesh. The Spirit delivers us from the flesh puts to death the flesh, and makes us alive, renews us, all of these things, and that makes us indebted to God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has set you free. He has given you life. You are in Him, and He is in you. As we read in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. What I want you to gather is that we are debtors to God. Specifically in this passage, debtors to God the Holy Spirit. But we are not debtors to the flesh. In the fields near Ziklag, David long ago, found an Egyptian slave of an Amalekite. Now, his Amalekite master had left him for dead in the field, 
Remember that the Amalekites had come and burned Ziklag and taken all of the wives and property and ran away with it. And David and his men were in hot pursuit of these Amalekites. And this is when he comes across this Egyptian slave to the Amalekites. He was nearly dead, but David rescued him and gave him food and drink and allowed him to recover. And when the man regained his strength, David enlisted that man in his war against the Amalekites. It was through that slave that David learned the location of the Amalekites, and that slave led David and his men to the Amalekites, and it was because of that that David and his men slew the Amalekites. You see, that Egyptian slave, having been left for dead by his master, was no longer obligated to him. And he was happy to assist David who had saved him. Beloved, this is you. Sin has left you for dead, and certainly it's the case that were it not for God's intervention, sin would kill you. But God has rescued you. You have no obligation to sin. But God now employs you as an instrument of destruction against your former master, even sin. This leads us to our second point, which is the warning in the first half of verse 13. The warning is the first of two conditional statements you will see in verse 13. And it's as simple as it is startling. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. The words translated, you will die, are literally, you are about to die. And I think the reason for that is is to emphasize the certainty of it. If you live according to the flesh, you are on the brink of death. You will certainly die. Death here, as we've seen a number of times in Romans chapter 8, refers to all miseries, whether temporal or spiritual, including physical death and, of course, everlasting condemnation, what the Bible calls the second death or hell. Now, by this time in the book of Romans, this warning itself is not entirely surprising. We've already read that sin leads to death in chapter 6, verse 16. That the end of sin is death in chapter 6, verse 21. That the wages of death is, excuse me, the wages of sin is death in chapter 6, Verse 23, and here in verse 20, uh, excuse me, here in chapter 8, verse 6, we read, to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death. So it's not surprising that there's a connection or a warning between sin and death. What is somewhat surprising or difficult for us, however, is the persons to whom this is addressed. The warning in verse 13 is given to those who are called brothers in verse 12. Those who are said to not be debtors to the flesh. Now, we who believe in justification by faith and in the eternal security of the saints, we might be at this point tempted to dismiss this warning and seek comfort without it doing its work for us. But this warning is in the word of God, and God knows that we, his people, need this warning. John Calvin, something of a Calvinist, 
is helpful on this point. He said this, There is no confidence in God where there is no love of righteousness. It is indeed true that we are justified in Christ through the mercy of God alone. But it is equally true and certain that all who are justified are called by the Lord that they may live worthy of their vocation. Let then the faithful learn to embrace him, not only for justification, but also for sanctification, as he has been given to us for both these purposes, lest they rend him asunder by their mutilated faith. Do you see that? Calvin is saying if you have a faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins only and not for the putting to death of your sins or not for the walking according to the Spirit, then you have a mutilated faith. Because Jesus has been given to us for both of those things, both for our justification and for our sanctification. Remember that the flesh and the Spirit are antithetical. They're opposed. Just as a man cannot serve two masters, he will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other, neither can you live according to the flesh and live according to the Spirit. Therefore, it follows by necessity that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Dear friends, there is no promise of life for those who continue to live according to the flesh. There is only this threat. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But we come now to the promise, our third point at the end of verse 13. But if by the Spirit, there's a contrast, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, live here is the opposite of die in the former section. It refers ultimately to eternal life, to complete joy and happiness, blessedness in the Lord. Back in chapter 6, we read that having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the promise is life. And not just life, but life everlasting. Now this life, as we see in the end of verse 13, is conditioned upon putting to death the deeds of the body. If this than that. There is no escaping the connection between these two. The deeds of the body are understood usually as basically synonymous with the flesh. So there's a parallel of, if you notice, the first half of verse 13 and the second half of verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. So they seem to be basically synonymous. This is sort of like what we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
If we are to make a distinction between the flesh and the body in this case, I think the distinction would only be this. It is the physical body as an instrument of sin. And so often it is the case that it is our physical body which is the instrument of sin. It is where sin becomes most obvious and is the the tool or thing through which sin works itself out. Now I want you to observe three things about this putting to death the apostle describes. First of all, the verb put to death, which is in some translations mortify. Um, We get our theological concept of mortification from this word. But this, is, this verb is in the present tense. And this is important here for us because it refers here to a continuous and ongoing activity. This isn't a once-for-all thing where, where I have mortified sin and, and it is never again a threat. I never again have to entertain that. It is a continuous and ongoing activity. And something I want to mention now that, Lord willing, we will touch on again in a moment, but... We are talking about the mortification of sin, that is the killing of sin, but not the eradication of sin. I hope you understand this, Christian, that here on earth, under the sun, before glory, you will not eradicate all of the powers and presence of sin. But you can, day by day, be killing sin. So I want you to observe then the distinction between mortifying sin, that is to say killing it, removing its power, removing its appeal to you, and absolutely eradicating it, which will take place only in glory. So that's the first thing. It is an ongoing thing in the present, not a one-time thing, but continuous. Secondly, I want you to notice that the relationship between mortifying the deeds of the body And life is not a relationship principally of cause and effect or grounds and result. And let me explain what I mean by that. We read back in chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans, that life is a gift from God. Eternal life is the gift of God. Therefore, we cannot say that eternal life is caused by this mortification or this killing of the deeds of the flesh. John Owen, in that book I referenced earlier, he explains that putting to death the deeds of the body is not the cause, but it is the means which God has appointed for attaining it. You see, things can be related as cause and effect, or they can be related as a means and an end. It is the way to life, as it were. And I think we can illustrate this uh, somewhat in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 27, the apostle Paul is in a shipwreck. And the Lord promises him to save alive everyone. He says all the people will be spared. Only the ship will be destroyed. The condition is that no one can get off the ship. And at one point, if you remember, in the midst of the storm, the sailors... They were going to abandon the ship and leave everyone else on board. And and the Apostle Paul told the soldiers on the ship, you need to not let these men get off this ship because we will all survive, but they must stay aboard. Do you see that that ship 
and the sailors and those soldiers were all means to the end of God keeping his promise. Now, God could have certainly accomplished the preservation of all the souls on that ship a myriad of ways, but he appointed means. And those means included staying on the ship, having the sailors there, everyone doing their job, and then eventually washing up on shore. So there are means and an end, yet ultimately it is God who is the cause for the effect. So John Owen on this says, God has appointed this means for attaining that end which he has freely promised. Means, or think of them as steps on the way, though necessary, are subservient to the end of the free promise of life. The free promise of life comes first. And the means then are appointed as directions to that place. Now, there is a third thing I want you to notice about this putting to death or mortifying the deeds of the body. And this is very, very important for you, Christian. It is by the Spirit. By the Spirit. You are required to mortify the deeds of the body, but by the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is the efficient cause of this killing of sin. He provides the power by which you can kill sin. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, God says this, I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, And keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The new spirit which God puts in us is God the Holy Spirit. And it is God the Holy Spirit who causes us to walk in God's commandments. And this is how or by what power the Christian is able to kill the deeds of the body. Matthew Henry said, we cannot do it without the Spirit, but the Spirit will not do it without us. You know, in many aspects of our salvation, God is the alone actor. We call it monergism. God is the only one working. Think of it in our regeneration, in our effectual calling. God alone is working. And in our justification, God alone is working Even in our sanctification, it is principally God who puts to death sin, right? And God who enables us to obey him. But in our personal holiness, that holiness without which we will not see the Lord, there is a cooperation between God and his people. This is very much what is described in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Now that the way, the way that the Spirit empowers Christians to kill sin is very similar to the way that he empowered Samson, for instance. In Judges chapter 14, Samson tore a lion apart, a male full-grown lion, tore it apart with his bare hands as one would, quote, tear a young goat. 
just before that, we read that the Spirit of God moved mightily upon him. You see, Samson's strength to kill that lion was actually supernatural strength from God, God the Holy Spirit. So it is with us in fighting sin. The power, the strength by which we kill sins come from God, the Holy Spirit, who must move mightily upon us in order that we can accomplish the work he has set before us. We see something like this in the conquest. Remember when Israel, led by Joshua, went into the promised land? And the Lord promised them this land, and he promised them that all of these enemies were delivered into their hands. But do you know that Israel still had to strap on their swords and go into those places and kill those people? It is the same with sin. God has already delivered us from sin, and he has already freed us from its curse, and already freed us from its punishments. But he now tells us, go in there and kill it. While we're on the topic of the conquest and Joshua and Israel taking possession of the land, you might recall that for various reasons, they at many points failed to remove all of the Canaanites from the land. And then those Canaanites, do you suppose that those Canaanites just uh, never cause another problem again? Well, no, we know that through the influence of the Canaanites, Israel fell into many more sins, and they were led to follow after foreign gods, and God would have to bring disciplines upon them. And and the point I, I have in saying that is this. When we fail to kill sins, we are hurting our own comfort and happiness, and we are making ourselves susceptible to attacks from those very same sins at a subsequent time. But I also want you to consider that there is a difference between merely failing through weakness or for various reasons to vanquish all sins and refusing to do it. And I think we can illustrate this with the example of King Saul. King Saul, remember, he was supposed to kill Everything. He was supposed to put everyone to the sword and even the cattle, and he thought he would save King Agag. And the Lord was very displeased with him. And the reason was because Saul refused to obey the Lord and put to death what God had devoted to destruction. Christian, God has devoted your sins to destruction. It is open season on them, and God demands you to destroy them. Now then... How do we mortify sins? Well, we already see it as by the power of the Holy Spirit. But practically speaking, how do you, as a Christian, put sins to death? We have a clue about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. It says that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is in our likeness, in order to condemn or sentence to death the flesh. What did Jesus do? Very simply, what Jesus did was he said no to sin and yes to God. Over and over, he said no to sin and yes to God. In fact, he resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood. He resisted sin and was obedient to the point of death, even the cursed death of the cross. It is the same for you except that Jesus Christ has already 
delivered you from sin. And you don't have to die for sin because Jesus died for you for sin. But it is the same. You mortify sin when you say no to it and you say yes to God. That's the essence of it. Every time you tell sin no and you say yes to God, you are killing sin. You have no obligation to the flesh. We've already been told that. You have to understand that, that, that the flesh, the deeds of your body, are like a beggar or a stray cat. You just have to not feed them. Right? But you know, if you feed them, they will come back. But you can starve them. You see, sin is terrifying and it is deadly and it is a scary thing. But it does have weaknesses. Number one, it needs to feed. And you can starve sin by not giving it what it wants. And number two, you can, because you are not obligated to it, you can tell it no. And when you tell it no, that's killing it. Every time you say no to sin and yes to God, you are landing blows on sin. And that is what the scripture means by mortifying the deeds of the body. And that is why I say it is not about eradication of sin. You will never, until the Lord perfects you, remove all traces of sin. But you can constantly be involved in the fight against it. And that, dear friends, is what the Bible means by mortifying sin. Beloved, you have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But God, having delivered you, has enlisted you in the war against sin. And in this war, it really is kill or be killed. Be killing sin and you will live. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has accomplished our victory... We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have assured us of our salvation. And yet, O God, we are plagued and entangled and wore down by sin. We ask that you would more and more equip us. Help us to say no to those things which offend you and yes to those things which please you. We do pray, God, that you would forgive us our sins. For Christ's sake we ask. Amen.